Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, Gavin Adams in just a moment. I'll tell you later about a brand new series I start next week about difficult relationships that might be of interest to you. Um, but Gavin um, is an incredible friend of mine, an incredible um, just uh, resource to our staff, serves as chief strategy officer, which may mean nothing to you, but um, he's a part of Ministry Solutions, used to pastor Woodstock City Church, which is um, a part of our North Point network, and has just been an incredible um, just asset in terms of my leadership development, all that he does behind the scenes that you don't even know about for our church and where we're going as a church to impact this community in a massive way. And so if you guys would give it up really, really loudly, like you mean it, for Gavin Adams as he comes and brings this message today. Hey, good morning. Um, hey, I'm really sorry about Tom Brady. Um, as a native Atlantan, I'm really sorry. Um, maybe you guys can get Jameis Winston back. Fingers crossed. Okay. Um, hey, quick show of hands, audience participation. Uh, how many of you grew up uh, going to church? Just be super proud about it. Okay, cool. How many of you, if you're comfortable, um, did not grow up going to church? Like your family, whatever. Yeah, you guys are better off, I think, most of us. Okay, cool. I grew up going to church. Like when I tell people I'm a church kid, I mean like since I was negative nine months old, I've been in the church. Like we were churched, churched people. I, I grew up in you know, the belt buckle of the Bible belt kind of deal. Like every Sunday morning we were there, Sunday night we were there, Wednesday night, that was my favorite night. I don't know if you grew up in a Wednesday night church thing. We would go on Wednesday night, play basketball, drink sweet tea, eat mac and cheese and fried chicken. Like it was, del- it was wonderful, you know? I think Jesus was involved somewhere, I don't, I'm not sure, but it was really fun, you know? Uh, especially in middle school and high school, you know, because my friends were there and the girls were there. Um, and then there were girls that were there too, you know? So like, I enjoyed Wednesday night. Um, we had a Monday night thing. This is weird. I don't know if you ever had this. We had a Monday night visitation. Uh, <laughs> we would go around and like go to neighborhoods and knock on doors and invite people to church. Did you, anybody have to do that before? Oh my gosh, it was a nightmare. Like, I was horrible at it. We did it one time, right? One Monday night, my, my parents dropped me off. They're all excited that I'm gonna get to do this, you know? Like, what, what adult, what family wants like a ninth grader knocking on their door in the middle of dinner, you know, to bother them? So I did it one time, did not go well, right? So the next Monday, you know, the, hey, do you wanna do it again? I'm like, sure, because me and my friends and a couple of girls decided that we would just ditch the visitation we go to my buddy's house, play Atari. This is aging me a minute. We would just play video games together. And then we go back to church and go, yeah, we tried. Nobody wants to come, you know? I mean, I, I grew up church, church, church. Um, but I, I, honestly, I, I'm grateful. I, um, even though there were weird things about it, uh, even though that there were some difficult moments overall, you know, I'm real grateful for it. Uh, it taught me a lot. I, I learned a ton. 
I learned a ton about God. I learned a ton about myself. I learned a lot about kind of interacting with people. Um, I, I became a, a Christian when I was seven. I, I can take you to the exact place in my old house in Riverdale, Georgia, where I was standing in my room looking over my driveway. I remember praying that prayer at that moment. There's nothing magical about the prayer, but that prayer was just my recognition that something had happened, that, that God had saved me and forgiven me. Uh, at the age of 12, I was baptized. My parents were cool about that. They, they didn't just like immediately throw me in the water when I was seven. They were like, hey, just wait until you're ready, whenever you feel like you're ready. You know? So at 12, I was excited and I was ready. Um, this guy named Ken, Pastor Ken, baptized me at this church that we were going to. And then a few years later, fast forward three years, I'm 15. I'm 15 years old. We're there on a Wednesday night at my church, me and all my friends. I'm dating this unbelievable girl at the time who became my wife, so good for me. So we're dating, we're 15 years old, we're dating. We got married a lot later, we didn't get married at 15, but we're, we're, we're dating, we're at Wednesday night church, you know, we had eaten all the sweet tea and mac and cheese and fried chicken we could possibly consume. We had sat through this church thing, this Wednesday night youth group, but it was a pretty big youth group. I bet if you grew up in church, you had youth group stuff. It was a pretty big youth group. So after youth group, we would always go hang out in the edge of the parking lot, like on the sidewalk. And, you know, most of us weren't driving yet, so we were waiting on our parents to come pick us up. So we're just gathered in this kind of big circle, just talking. There's probably eight of us just, just kind of hanging out, right? And then over to my right here, I see Pastor Ken, the guy who had baptized me just a couple of years ago, you know? Now, we, we didn't have like a great relationship. We weren't friends or anything, but I did see him and I thought, well, he probably recognizes me. I mean, he dunked me underwater. You recognize those people. So... I look over here, and there's Ken, and he's walking our direction. Well, I don't think anything of it, right? Until he gets about 10 feet away, and I can tell he's looking right at me, and he's kind of coming towards me. So he walks right up to me. Keep in mind, I'm 15. He's like a grown man, right? He walks up to me, and he says, uh, son, I need you to step over here with me for a minute. So I'm thinking, oh, oh something's happened, right? Like, something's gone wrong. You know, it's something like my, my mom and dad in an accident. I, mean, I have no idea, you know? So I walk over with Pastor Ken, we, we move about 10 feet away, you know, and he turns around and he looks at me. Now, meanwhile, all my friends are over here, right? And they're like, oh, you know, they don't know what's happening. They, they think I'm in trouble, they don't know, you know? So Ken looks at me and he, he looks me right in the eyes and he says, son, and you know, if anybody starts that direction of hitting your dad, like, it's not good, you know? He says, son, I saw how close you were standing beside that girl. And I know what you were thinking. Now, I gotta be honest. When, when I became a believer at seven, you know, we, we, you know, God gives you a spiritual gift. You know how this works, right? So God gave me the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 15, really unfiltered with it, you know? And this guy, this guy is pulling me out from my friends to embarrass me in a way, you know? And he says, I know what you were thinking. <laughs> I looked at him, I said, really? So, do you know what I'm thinking now? He said, I don't really appreciate your tone. I was like, you don't appreciate my tone. I was like, I was just standing there talking to my friends and you're accusing me and you're judging me just because I'm a, a high school student? Now, I mean, let's be honest, I was 15. He probably did know what I was thinking, right? I mean, it was 15. 50-50 shot, you know, hunger or girl. So, but that isn't the point, you know? I know what you're thinking. I walk back over to, to, my, to my girlfriend, Chantel. I walk over there and I grab her hand and I make sure he's looking right at me, you know, and I try to just make out with her right in front of him, you know, again, because I'm 15, like, seems like a great idea, you know, and she's like, okay, this is weird. She goes, what did he want? I said, I'll tell you later. Luckily, my, 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 my dad pulled up like right after that, like within seconds, and I stormed into the vehicle, you know, 
My dad's like, hey, how was youth group? I'm like, it was terrible, you know? I didn't say anything on the way home because I didn't want to embarrass myself or my girlfriend or whatever, you know? We drop her off, we're on the way home, and my dad goes, hey, so it doesn't, doesn't sound like things went well at youth group. I said, let me tell you what happened. And I walked him through the whole scenario. My dad's smart, you know? I said, I am never, ever going back to that church again. I don't care, I'm never going back. And my dad knew this was a real pivotal moment, right? And he looks at me and he says, hey, that, that's cool. You don't have to go back. You don't have to. Because he knew, right? If he forces me back, it's going to get him worse. You don't even have to go back. Here, here, this is insane. I'm 47 years old, right? I have never set foot on the property of that church since that moment, ever. If you were to ask me, like, how would you define church in those early years for you? You know, as a kid, as a student, as a young adult, right? Even kind of getting into closer to my 20s and 30s. If you were to say, like, what one word would you use to describe Christians, describe pastors, describe churches? What's the one word, right? There are some words we, we probably should choose, like loving, Jesus, right? None of those words are the words that I would have chosen. You know the word that I would have chosen? I hate it. It's the word against. The word against defines almost every experience I think I had at church growing up. As I think back about my experiences, it's the word against. There are so many things I remember our church was against as a kid. I actually wrote a bunch of them down. Um, we were against dancing. I don't know if you, your church was that way. We were against dancing. We were against like dancing, you know, drinking, chewing, and hanging around with people who were doing, I mean, all that. I mean, like you couldn't do any of those things, right? Because if you did, you were sinning against God. Like, so you couldn't dance, you couldn't do any of those things. Uh, we were against music. There was a lot of music that we were against. Um, this will age me again, but I don't know if you ever did this, but did you ever have an experience where like you burned your uh, tapes or records or, or, or CDs? Like don't raise your hand because I know it's embarrassing, but I remember that. Like, I remember us having a youth group like a, a burning night, not in, in hell, just like with music. And... We were supposed to bring our music to burn the, the satanic music. And I remember thinking, like, I really like Def Leppard. Like, I don't, this seems like a terrible idea because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to burn that CD, that tape, but then next week I'm going to have to go rebuy it. You know, my friends would get excited about it. I remember them throwing stuff in the fire and me trying to get it out. I was like, ooh, I don't have the Metallica CD. Let me get that, you know. But like we were against music, you know, we were really for Sandy Patty and then we weren't, you know, then we were, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like we, we, we were against my, my youth, my youth pastor, bless his heart. Um, he, he claimed that he never even held hands with his girlfriend, fiance until they got married. I remember thinking, man, your wedding night's going to be something else, right? So <laughs> never even held hands. So our church, we were against premarital fill in the blank, premarital anything. We were against it. I mean, I was on a ski trip with our church uh, to, to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, Ober Gatlinburg. It's not really, they call it skiing. It's really like ice on top of AstroTurf. Like you're going real fast and you hear that AstroTurf, it's just immediate stop, you know? So we're there, I'm walking through the little chalet with, with my girlfriend, Chantel, we're dating still, right? And I'm holding her hand and, and, and this guy, Lee, pulls me aside and he goes, son, same thing, you know, son, Hey, I saw you were holding hands. You're know, not supposed to have any sort of you know, public uh, di displays of affection and you know, whatever. Um, so I'm gonna probably have to call your dad. <laughs> I remember telling him, hey, go ahead, man. You can call my dad and tell him to come pick me up. He ain't driving to Obergatlinburg to pick me up <laughs> for holding hands with my girlfriend. Like, that's ridiculous, right? And again, sarcasm and all the stuff. But 
Like, it was incredible. We were premarital anything, we were against it. Um, I remember um, we were against companies. There was a season where we were, like, really boycott happy. We were boycotting all sorts of companies. We were boycotted JCPenney's. We boycotted Lowe's and Home Depot, which is really bad because then you can't get anything, right, for your house. <laughs> I don't know where you go. Um, we were against UPS, uh, PBS, right? They were really terrible people at PBS. Um, bo- we were against the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts. I don't, again, know why, uh, but we were. Um, we were against things like Oreos and Muppets uh, and Cheerios. I remember one day us having a discussion about why we were anti-Cheerios. I'm like, why? What, what has Cheerios ever done to you? You know, like, why are we anti that? Um, And then there were even toys we were against, Cabbage Patch dolls. Some of you will remember that. Like we were like crazy boycott the Cabbage Patch doll. I don't, again, I don't know why. And it was because of the cabbage birthing. I have no idea, but we were really against that. Um, We were against uh, Barbie dolls. You know, there's a whole thing about that. I mean, it's just incredible. Like growing up in a church like that, how often I heard the word against. Now, the uh, good news, I guess, is, um, I mean, it's been 20 or 30 years, right? So we've gotten way better, right? I wish, you know. Like, we are worse now than I think we used to be. If you were to go, some of you are this person. You're not like a church person. You're not a Jesus person. Like, you're here. You're watching online. Like, somebody's convinced you to do this. Maybe you're just going to do it just for today. You know, maybe you're getting a free lunch or they promised you'd meet somebody cute. Like, I don't know why you're here. But you might, if you're not a church person, if I were to ask you, hey, when you think about the church people, when you think about evangelical, when you hear that word, when you think about Christian, Christianity, like, what comes to mind? I bet a lot of you would say against, you know? It's real unfortunate, isn't it, that the church today, right, we are more known for what we are against than what we are for. I mean, that's the church. The church is just known more for what it's against than what it is is for. As a professional Christian, like I've been like paid to be a Christian now for like 15, 16 years, which means I have met with a lot of people, a lot of people who are curious about faith, trying to figure it out, and I met with a lot of people who are walking away from faith walking away from Jesus. And when you interact with these people, maybe, maybe you've done this, when you interact with those people and you ask them, hey, what is it? It's never Jesus that's the problem. It's always the people who claim to follow Jesus. That's the problem. Like no one has ever said to me, I don't think Jesus likes me. Nobody has ever said that. But they say, if, if the people who follow Jesus are anything like Jesus, I'm out. Because those people don't like me. Those people are not cool. Those people are super, super judgy, judgy. And they're hypocritical, by the way, because they're doing the same thing I'm doing, but they love calling me out for it. That's just kind of what the church is, is known for, of being against things and, and against people. Now, really quick, I, I'm not in any way gonna suggest that, that Christians, Jesus followers, that we should not be against anything. There are some things we should absolutely be against. There is one common thread, it's sin. We should be against sin. That's not a word we use a lot, but sin is very simply anything that we do that works against what God is working for. That's what sin is. Sin is anything that we do that works against what God is working for. We should be against that. We should be against that. Sin is a big deal. Listen, God sent his son Jesus to die for you because of sin. It's a big deal. We should be against sin. The p- problem is, is that we're not really as much against our sin as we are the sins of everybody else. Like we see, we, we see, is it as true? Like we seem to get so hyper-focused on everyone else's thing, not our thing, you know? Like, like we're sitting there eating our fourth whopper, glutton, right, sin, 
yelling about everybody else's sin. Meanwhile, we're sinning, you know, like, like we're not worried, isn't it? And it's a psychological thing, if we're honest. Like we, and it's just in our humanity. We tend to give ourselves grace and make excuses for what we do, but then judge other people without the same element of grace. We do that all the time, you know? And you know what that turns us into? I think as far as the world is concerned, as far as non-Christians, non-believers are concerned, it really just turns us into becoming kind of like the world's big brother. We're really just the big brother of the world. And not like in a good way. Like we're the big brother in a bad way. The kind of big brother that's always looking to catch other people. The the big brother who's always looking to kind of win and judge. The, the, The big brother who really just kind of comes across as being against you, against everybody else. Again, don't raise your hand, but you've bumped into these people. You might, you might be one of these people. And if you're not a Jesus follower, I guarantee you this is why. It isn't because of Jesus. That dude loves you like crazy. He died for you. But the way the people who claim to follow him have treated you, why would you want to be a part of that? Like, like how could you begin to lean into Jesus based on what you're seeing in the people around you? We're, I'm going to look at a, a story in the Bible in just a second. Um, and it really, it, it is so poignant. If, if you're not a, a Christian, not a, a Jesus person, I think this story might shed some light on something that you just never knew about. If you are a Christian, this story, this story is so important to understand. And the problem with the story is it's so familiar, we get focused on one part and miss the rest of it. But if you're a Christian, the rest of the story is what matters to you. There was a group of people 2,000 years ago when Jesus was kind of roaming the planet, right? God and Abad, when he was here 2,000 years ago, who hated Jesus. And they were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were like the big brothers uh, of of Judaism. That's who the the Pharisees were. They're like the religious big brothers 2,000 years ago. Uh, The Pharisees' job were to be the most religious people walking around, obeying the laws of God, and catching you for not. That's what they basically did. That was their job. Obey the laws of God, and then make sure you do too. They were literally like the big brothers of Judaism. Now, we make fun of these guys and we kind of throw them under the bus and partially for a good reason, but honestly, they took faith more seriously than anybody else. And they weren't doing it right, but they didn't know better. They were doing their best. They believed, they believed that the way to get in good with God is to be good and follow God, obey God. If a good God gives you boundaries, obviously obeying them gets you in good with God. That's what they believed. And they took it really seriously. And they wanted you to take it seriously. And every time you messed up, they were there to catch you. Now enter Jesus into this. Jesus understands that it's way bigger than that. Jesus understands that it's about your faith and your heart, not your behavior. Belief over behavior all the time. That belief ultimately changes behavior. That belief drives behavior, drives repentance. But they didn't see it that way. So everywhere Jesus went, the Pharisees were there as well. And everywhere Jesus went, the Pharisees were hating on Jesus and trying to catch Jesus. After about three years of this, they crucified Jesus. They're the ones who did that. So there's this incredible story where Jesus is hanging around a bunch of people who were nothing like the Pharisees. And the Pharisees didn't like it at all. So they show up and they want to catch Jesus. They want to get him. Luke, one of the authors of uh, the Bible, wrote uh, the book of Luke. We're not very creative in naming it. Book of Luke. It's the kind of documents, one of the four documents that expounds on the life and times of Jesus, his ministry life. 
So Luke asked everybody who was at this gathering what happened, and he wrote it down for us. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along Luke chapter 15, or you can just read on the screen. Here's what it says. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now just really quick pause. This is why the Pharisees hated Jesus. If you were a tax collector, you were a traitor to Judaism. You were working for Rome of all people, collecting taxes for Rome without any regulation. You could collect as much tax as you want, keep the rest, pay Rome off. You were a traitor. You were so bad, you had your own category of bad. Like there were the sinners, the murderers, the liars, and the tax collectors. They were even worse. That's how the Pharisees saw these people. Like, and Jesus is hanging around them all the time. Hey, get this. Jesus asked one of them, Matthew, to be a disciple. And he wrote one of the gospels in our Bible. I mean, think about that for a minute. Like, you think you've done some bad things? Matthew, way worse than you. And Jesus asked him to be a disciple. So Jesus is hanging around with these people. And the Pharisees are losing their minds. They are so upset about it. But everywhere Jesus went, this is so important, everywhere Jesus went, people who were nothing like Jesus liked him. Like every, just think about this, everywhere Jesus went, people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus because he loved them, sincerely loved them. Pharisees couldn't understand that and it bothered them to death. So verse two, but the Pharisees, And the teachers of the law, they muttered as they watched Jesus interacting with the sinners and the tax collectors. This man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. I mean, can you believe it? Well, Jesus being Jesus, right? He he, he knows what's going on. I mean, the Pharisees are muttering in the background, but he knows what they're muttering. He knows what they're thinking. So Jesus decides this is the perfect time to preach a little sermon. Jesus often preached in parables. You may know what a parable is, like if you grew up with me, uh, like I did as a church kid, like going to VBS with a flannel graph and the wind would blow and Jesus would fly off, right? So a parable, a parable is just a made up story that has like an eternal heavenly meaning, that's it. Jesus constantly made up stories because stories are easier to understand and remember. He constantly made up stories to help prove a really important point. So in this moment, as he's hanging around with these tax collectors and these sinners and the Pharisees who think they're so incredible, Jesus decides to tell three different parables that that all have the same point. The first parable he starts with, you may have even read it before, it's the parable of the lost sheep. Here's how the parable goes. Suppose there is a shepherd. And of course the Pharisees know that everybody is somebody in the parable, you know. Suppose there's a shepherd, so God is the shepherd. And he has a hundred sheep. Now, the Pharisees are thinking those are the sinners and tax collectors. They're the sheep. Suppose God has a bunch of sheep and one of the sheep drifts off. The shepherd would leave the 99 to chase after and find that lost sheep. And once he found the lost sheep, no matter how long it takes, he would put the sheep on his shoulder, gently carry it back to the rest of the flock and celebrate because something that was once lost has now been found. Okay, the point of the story was so simple. The point of the story, God is for those who are far from him. That was the point. God is for those that are far from him. Jesus looks around and they're not quite getting it yet. He says, let me tell you another story. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins. They all went, oh, 
right? First of all, a woman, you know, shouldn't have money, at least in that, you know, in their way of thinking. Second, 10 silver coins, that's a lot of money. I mean, in this culture, it was a very hand-to-mouth culture. Like you, you, you worked as hard as you could to get a little bit of money to buy a little bit of food and start all over again every day. So if you had any extra money at all, you were considered wealthy. And this woman has 10 silver coins. Jesus says, so suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Well, she turns her house upside down looking for the coin. Everybody's nodding their head. You're like, dang right. Like turn the house upside down, removing all the cushions, you know, looking in the, you know, vacuum, like bag, everything, you know. And then eventually Jesus says she finds the missing coin. And when she does, she's so excited. She invites all of her friends and neighbors over to celebrate because what was once lost has now been found. What's the point? God is for those things that are far from him. And then he says, let me tell you one more story. He says, suppose, this is the story of the prodigal son. Maybe you've heard it. He says, there's a, there's a, there's a father who has two sons. The younger son does maybe the most disrespectful thing possible. He, he, he looks at the dad and he says, dad, I, I just, I, wonder, I want you to pretend you're dead and give me my share of the inheritance now. Can you imagine sitting in that, in that room where the kind of honor of a father was so important in the culture? And in the story, the younger son says to the dad, you know what, you're worth more to me dead than alive. If you could give me my money now, I'll be on my way. Of course, everybody's so angry at the beginning of the story. And then they can't believe it, but the dad in the story says, okay, son, I'll, I'll give you your, your share. And, and then the younger son gets the money and he goes off to like, you know, Jerusalem, Vegas, you know, and, and, and does all the things you're not supposed to do. Like he's living it up. He's doing everything you're not supposed to do. Like if there was a list of things not to do, he did all of them four times, all of it. But then he lost all of his money. He squandered all the money and now he's homeless. And this younger son has nowhere to turn. He's not just like, I mean, pigs were like so gross to Jewish people. Like it was part of the law. You don't eat pig, right? I mean, it seems incredible. Bacon is so good, but you weren't supposed to. So, so, so he's, he's not just, you know, eating pig. He's eating the food that the pigs eat now. He's homeless. He's sleeping with the pigs. That's how bad things have gotten for the younger son. And then the younger son decides he wants to come back home. One night where he's sleeping in the, in, in the pig trough, he has a thought, you know, my, my dad's servants have it better than this. What if I go home and just ask him to be a servant? Maybe, maybe, maybe he'll let me do that. Have you ever been in trouble before and you're walking back home? You remember this with your mom and dad and you're rehearsing your speech the whole way home? That's what the younger son is doing. So he's walking home and he's rehearsing the speech because he knows when he sees his dad, he's gonna be in big trouble. But he's gonna beg for just a scrap of food. And the story says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. <laughs> the, the kid starts to do a speech and the dad goes, no, 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 it's okay. You don't have to say anything. I love you and I'm so happy you're back. You know the point of the story? God is for things that are far from him. Same point. Just for a second, if you're not a Christian, not a Jesus person, if you've been wondering about what God thinks about you, that's what he thinks about you. I mean, he doesn't want you to sin. He doesn't want you to work against the things that he's working for because of your benefit, like a perfect heavenly father would want. Maybe you have felt this, that God has been pursuing you your whole life. He has been. 
but not to pay you back. He just wants to win you back and embrace you back. And if you're thinking, well, what about spring break? I've got great news and terrible news. He already knows. He watched you the whole time. None of it was in secret. You thought it was. It wasn't. And he still chooses you. And he still wants you. That's the, that's the point. Now, in the room, listening to this story, the Pharisees are, are listening and they're like, okay, big deal, right? They're like, we know Jesus. Every time you make up one of these silly stories, God is somebody and we are somebody. And so far you've told three stories and we're none of the people. Because I know one thing, we're not the dad, you know, and we sure aren't the younger son. No Pharisee would do what those younger son did. So who are we in the story? I mean, what's the point of the story for us? The righteous people, the good people, the godly people, what's the point? <laughs> Jesus, I imagine he was so fun, man. I bet he just looked at them and he winked at some of the tax collectors and said, hey, we're not done with the story yet. He looks at the Pharisees. He says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Now, what do you think the older son was doing? Older son things, doing the right thing. That's what the older son was doing. I am an older brother, so I think that's probably right, you know? The older son is in the field doing what he's supposed to do, right? The younger son has run off and done all the things he wasn't supposed to do. Meanwhile, I, the older brother, have been here the whole time, getting it right, obeying, taking care of my father's you know, sheep and goats and herds. And, and, and by the way, I'm having to also do my younger brother's work because he's a loser, you know? So I'm doing double the work. He's doing what he's supposed to do. So he thinks, right? Meanwhile, the older brother's in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, which is sin, right? I'm just kidding. So he, called, so he called one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? Like, what's happening? The servant says, your younger brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. He's like, he, he did what? He, he, he killed the fattened calf, the one that I've been fattening up, like for my graduation? We just killed it for... The loser brother, that's what just happened. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all of these years I have been slaving for, it's a key word, for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Dad, I've been getting it right the whole time and all I wanted was a kebab and you wouldn't even do that. Now we're killing the most important, like the most delicious calf we have because of this? You've gotta be kidding me. But, but when this son of yours, he reminds him, but when this son of yours who has squandered all of your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Not a question, exclamation point. I can't believe it. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. See, the first point of the story is incredibly important. God is for those that are far from him. You need to remember that. Everybody should remember that. But if you're a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, there's a second point to the story that we seem to always miss. And the second thing is that we just can't be against the things that God is for. That's the point of the second part of the story. That, that we either 
We either get to choose to be the father in the story, to behave like the father, or behave like the older brother. Those are the options. We either get to behave like the father or behave like the older brother. And I don't need to tell you, I think we have a reputation for being older brothers. I think we just have a reputation for being big brothers. And if I can be honest, it's easy to act like the big brother. Because watching people behave the way they behave, maybe sometimes we're jealous, if we're honest. We're jealous of that. Sometimes we know it's bad for them, but instead of loving them into something maybe greater, better, we chastise, we condemn. Instead of compassion, it's condemnation. We become really judgmental. It's what older brothers do. But it's not what heavenly fathers do. And we get to choose which one we're gonna be. I'm gonna make a huge assumption. I don't think any of you wanna be older brothers. I think all of you would very much prefer to love people the way the Father loves people. It's what we're called to do. And the good news is it's not actually that hard. The story actually tells us exactly how to do it. There are four specific things that I think we can do. I'm just gonna read them out really quick. There are four things we can do to love people the way that the father in the story loves his younger brother. Here's the first one. We gotta make a decision that we're just not gonna get mad at lost things anymore. Like we can't get mad at lost things. In all three stories, right, not once did the God kind of representation person in the story get angry with the sheep, angry with the coin, or even angry with the younger brother. And should he have been angry with his son? Maybe, but he wasn't. Because that's what grace and mercy means. Fairness is being angry with him. Grace is loving him even when he doesn't deserve it. We can't get mad at lost things if we really wanna follow Jesus the way that Jesus loves you. Next one, <laughs> we can't expect lost people to behave like found people. Man, I have no idea why we started doing this, right? I have no idea why we started expecting people who have never said or agreed to live a way to then chastise them for not living that way. If they haven't agreed to do it, then they, never, they don't have to do it. And we shouldn't require them to behave before they can belong. We need to embrace them into belonging so they can see what's on the other side of believing through you. It's a big deal. Next one, <laughs> we can't be concerned with guilt by association. It's <laughs> my favorite part of Jesus, man. That dude is always around the worst people. And the religious people called him out every time and he never stopped. Really quick, um, I used to play tennis a lot. I used to love playing tennis. Um, I specifically joined tennis teams with the worst people in the neighborhood, okay? All of the atheists, the sinners, the tax collectors, maybe they were IRS, I don't know. But like, I found the worst tennis team of the worst attitudes and I joined that team. And I would not tell them what I did because if you tell them you're a pastor, it freaks them all out. So I didn't tell them. And then halfway through the season, I built enough of a relationship with them. I'd invested in them and I began inviting them to church with me. And it really, it really messed with their heads when I walked up on the stage with a mic on. I mean, they didn't know what to do with that, you know? And then after about a year with the tennis team, when all of them were coming to church with me and either had given their life to Christ or at least curious about it, you know what I did? I changed tennis teams. I went and found the next worst group of people because I just wasn't gonna be concerned by guilt by association. And I was the pastor. You know, So if you're never around lost people, I'm not sure we're doing what we're supposed to do. Here's one more. We're almost, almost done. 
The only thing we are gonna be concerned with doing, and this is gonna be hard for us as Christians, we're just gonna be concerned with inspiring people to follow Jesus. That's it. That's it. Now let me tell you why. Let me tell you why this is a big deal. The Holy Spirit is incredibly adept at convicting people. The Holy Spirit is mysterious. There's one thing I know for sure about the Holy Spirit. I am not it. I know that for sure. God did not place me in the lives of people to condemn them or to convict them. He put me in their life to love them. The way that the father in the story loved the son. That's actually what we're called to do. And, and I know if you're, if you're thinking, but what about, I get it. I totally understand it. But what about all the things? And what about lifestyle? And what about behavior? And what, I know, I get all of that. I totally get it. I don't know what to do about that, but I'm gonna hug people and love them and let Jesus deal with that. And if they wrestle something to the ground with Jesus and come to a different conclusion, I'm gonna be okay with it. And I'll tell you why. Well, yeah, it's really sweet, right? It's real easy to clap until you do it. You know, like it's like, it's really easy to go, yeah, you're right, you're right. And then, and then it happens, you're like, oh, this is hard. It is hard. It's incredibly hard. But we gotta trust Jesus that he's gonna deal with them the way that he needs to deal with them. And that's not your job. Your job is just to keep presenting the love of the Father. Listen, this is such a big deal. And the reason it's such a big deal is because we represent God to those people who are far from him. People are looking at you and they're wondering what God actually is like. The minute they know that you follow him, you set the pace and tone for who God is in their life. So how do you think they're gonna feel when you act like the older brother? How do you think they're gonna feel when they bump into judgment or hypocrisy? They're gonna think God's that way. You know, I told you I'd never set foot in that church again, um, which is true. Um, my, my wife's family went to another church, though. And I'm, man, I was so lucky that that they did. I don't know that I ever would have gone to church. I mean, the fact that I am a pastor is insane to me still. So, but my, my girlfriend, after that, son, you know, Wednesday night at church, you know, she was mortified too, you know. She said, hey, maybe, maybe we could just go to church with my parents, you know, go to, go to our church. And I so reluctantly went, but I also kind of wanted to go with my girlfriend and spend more time with her. So I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, you know. So I show up the next Wednesday night at her church and I walk in, and I, I mean, I am jaded, cynical, I'm all the things, you know? I'm all, and I'm 15, you know, so I have a bad attitude just by default, you know? So I walk in, expecting the worst, because that's what I have been experiencing, expecting more against and judgment and all that. And I walk in, and there's a guy named James White there. James White's the most unassuming dude you've ever met, super uncool, right? Really just styles from a decade or a half ago. I mean, just that guy, you know? A weird haircut, you know. I remember all that. I walk in and James says, oh, hey, are you Gavin? I'm like, yeah. He, he says, Chantel has told me all about you. I am so glad that you guys are together. I know that her family really like, thinks a lot of you. I, I remember thinking, uh, but look how close I'm standing to her. And you know what I'm thinking right now, you know? <laughs> We, we sit down at youth group. It's like 25 of us, much smaller church. James teaches this kind of lesson. And I'm like testing him without knowing that, you know, like I'm holding hands with her during the thing. Afterwards, he walks up to me again. As I'm holding hands, 
And he looks at me and he says, I am so glad you came today. He said, if you ever come back, I'd be so happy to have you. you, you, I, hope you I hope you like our church. He goes, I just, he goes, I just wanna help you live your best life and anything to do to help, you just let me know. And he kind of patted me on the back and we walked out. I, I, this is always emotional to talk about, but listen, I'm not kidding. James White saved Christianity for me. I'm, like, I'm not kidding. James White saved Jesus for me. Because if it weren't for James White, I'd just walked away. James White saved it because he chose to love me and be the father in the story, not the big brother. And here's what I know about you. There are people in your life right now who need you to be James White for them. There are people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, and they need you to be James White, not a big brother. And all you gotta do is love them. All you gotta do is hug them. All you gotta do is resist the urge to convict them and judge them. And instead, treat them the way that God wants to treat them. So when they see you, they'll lean in the direction of their heavenly father. I'm gonna pray for us in just a second, but before I do, um, I just want you to take like 30 seconds. And I want you to think about what it would look like in your life to represent the father in that story a little bit better. If you're not a Christian, I'd love for you to think about what it would feel like to walk back to your heavenly father with all the baggage, with all the stories and all the junk, knowing that it's okay and he loves you anyway. Just take a second and do that. Hey, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us in spite of us. Thank you for placing people in our lives that reflect your love and your kindness and your gentleness. God, I pray we will be those people. I pray that we will be the kind of people that reflect who you are and reflect your love for everyone on the planet. So Father, give us the ability to resist the urge to condemn and convict and instead, give us just this spiritual power of compassion and empathy and love. God, please put us in relationships with people who need you. Father, help us find people who are far from you so that we can establish relationships, not as a project, but because we genuinely care so much about them. God, I pray that we will be a part of overpopulating heaven because of how we treat people. We love you, Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.